Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. when there's a lady who's pregnant one Sunday and then shows up with a baby the next Sunday. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I think you were here. Were you pregnant last week? Yeah. It's awesome. It's like, I'm not even going to miss a Sunday. So what? I had a baby. Um, hey, welcome. Welcome to Radiant again. There's a lot of people here. I thought we fixed this. <laughs> this is cool. You can always tell, I, I didn't know there's a lot of people, but I was like starting to sweat during worship. I was like, man, there's be a lot of voices in here. So I'm glad every one of you is here. Um, we're going to, we're, we're doing a series leading up to Easter called Redemption. So we're going to continue in that. I, I hope you're not tired of me. I'm starting to get tired. Not of you guys, but it's just kind of a weird thing we have going here. It's like this, this man's supposed to go away up on the mountain for a week and then come back with something to say and you guys all listen to me for 40 minutes and it better be worth something and I got my Bobby Brown mic on so it's official but it's just kind of like I just was thankful I was like God I'm so thankful I'm not the only one that like hears you like that you're in each of us and you're speaking and he's doing something and that just was a life to me that I didn't have to like come down the mountain with tablets like Moses and say like ha ah. you know it's like we're we got the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to us. So we're going to um, learn some more today about Exodus. We, we have these booklets that we made. If you have them, if you brought them, that's great. You get, you get a gold star in your front cover for bringing it. Um, if, you, if you haven't got it, been able to pick one up, I think there's a few more extra at the, the Connect table. Um, it just gives you space to take notes and questions to reflect on. This is a, a seven-week series. In the book of Exodus, it's not exhaustive. We can't study every single story. It's, it's way too big of a book. Um, but we're focusing on the theme of redemption. Redemption being deliverance, being set free from, from sin, from suffering. Um, and that redemption comes with a price. It's costly. Um, but redemption also and especially means renewal. God is uh, not just saving us and then walking away for us to figure it out. He's daily renewing us into his image, making us his people. And we see that in the book of Exodus. It's the, the, the process of him sanctifying us, making us more and more like him, um, the Holy Spirit getting more and more of us. So we, we started, we saw the Israelites were in Egypt suffering. They were slaves in bondage, trapped. Um, God heard them. He saved them through this Passover story, sending plagues against Egypt and he passed over their homes when they spread the, the blood of a, a perfect lamb on their doorpost. And then they leave Egypt. And last week we, we heard about the Red Sea story of him, of them being trapped between, you know, the, the is, Egyptian armies charge after them and are more ticked than ever and they want to kill them. And, but they're pinned in against the Red Sea and they don't have any way forward. And so we talked about shame and how God, yeah, he, he frees us from sin, but he frees us from shame, the effects of sin. And, and we talked about that last week. And, I, you know, I think a lot of us, if, well, 
me, I can struggle with this, with, with black and white, with absolutes. You know, we, we like, it's kind of cool to talk about gray areas, you know, but when it comes to our sin, I am so thankful God didn't provide a gray area. I'm so thankful that he didn't just, like, it, that the Red Sea and the Passover wasn't this gray thing, like, maybe we're really free. No, the Egyptians were dead, like, all of them, black and white. It's done. You're free. And I'm so thankful that that's the case with our shame, that, that it's not a gray area. It's not up for grabs. It's not a coin flip. Like, we really are set free, and that's, that's our hope in Christ. So, um, yeah, I just was reflecting on that this week, just so grateful that God has f- put an end to our sin, put an end to our shame in, in Jesus. And so I get to stand up here, not as Mike Young, trying to be a Christian for 10 years, but Mike Young, who died 10 years ago, and now Christ lives in me. I mean, that's, what, what better news is that? It's not us trying to, to make it in the world. It's no, we died with him once and for all, and we now live to him. So, we're going to um, move to a new story in the book of Exodus. And don't think that you have to be like tracking your life like week by week with this redemption process. That'd be like redemption on hyperspeed. Like, okay, I got to be done suffering. And now, you know, I got to be done with shame. And it's like, you no, know, God's weaving the story in us. It, it ha- and it won't be the last time that we have to talk about shame and have to face those, those obstacles. So just track what the Holy Spirit's doing with you right now. Right? Take notes on it. What is he speaking to you? What, what is God doing uh, and, and showing you in this story? Um, so I wanted to read a verse, not from Exodus. This is a verse we're going to come back to. And if we don't come back to it, I've failed. So that's why I want to read it to start. It's like you, you got to call your shot, you know, so you make sure you come back to it. It's out of John uh, chapter six. These are actually words from Jesus. And he's referring to this story we're about to read. Jesus said to the people who, who were listening to him, this is uh, John six thirty two. Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we do come to you, Jesus, this morning, bread of life. We're hungry, we're thirsty, we're in need, Lord. And it's just so good to confess that to you. I thank you that you're here, you're with us, your presence, Lord, is so good. Would you come minister to your people, Holy Spirit? Come speak, come just bring your word alive to our eyes today. We want to feast on you, Jesus, today. We love you. I love what you're doing here in, our, in, in this church. Thank you for what, 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 you're, what you're speaking to us through redemption, God. In your name we pray, amen. So like I said, the people of God have just been miraculously set free, rescued from Egypt. They're undeniably free right now. Egypt's dead. Their enemy's gone. Like, no more Egypt. It's not, I wonder if Pharaoh's gonna come back. No, we saw him. He washed up on the shore. He's gone. So, they're free. And that, but they have, are, they're not yet in the promised land. And this is so true for us. We, the Bible tells us we're free. We've been set free from sin and shame, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of that promise, right? 
We're in some ways still wandering. We're still waiting for that promise. And we, so we join with creation. When, when the Bible talks about creation groaning, we're longing for the appearing of Jesus because we have yet to taste the, the fulfillment of what he's promised. Although we are free, it's, it's been done. It's been set. set. So Israel saved. They're through the Red Sea and they turn around and they face miles of wilderness in front of them. Like miles they don't see the promised land. You know, they, you'd think they'd been through enough, but they, they see wilderness. And so they journey into the wilderness, and about two months in, they start running out of food. They start running out of the, the food they brought with them from Egypt, and so they start to complain like any normal human being would do. They complain because they don't have any food, and they're in the wilderness. They went camping, and the ice chest ran out, right? They're hungry. Can't blame them for that. And they start, they don't, they're not just complaining, but they start fantasizing about what they had in Egypt. Like they're hungry and they say, we're in chapter 16. Sorry, I should have filled you in on that. Of Exodus. Sorry, let me back up. Exodus is it's the second book of the Bible. That's where we're going to be at. It's right early in your, in, your, in your Bibles and we're in chapter 16. So we're just gonna, I'm just going to, we're going to kind of walk through pieces of that. I might jump around. So in verse 3, they're complaining, and they say to Moses, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Sure, Moses, the Egyptians wanted to kill us and our kids, but at least we had meat, Moses. And I can't blame them for that. I mean, they're forced into like veganism out here and they're complaining. And I, I understand they, they're, they're longing. They're like, they're, do you guys remember the meat we ate in Egypt? Wasn't that so good? Yeah, I know we were slaves and all that, but we got to eat tri-tip and stuff. So yet again, God hears his people. He hears them complaining and he doesn't cast them off. Although he's just rescued them, he hears and he tells Moses what he's about to do. He's going to rain bread from, from heaven. He's going to send bread from heaven. And this might be the point of the story where if you're like me and you appreciate logic, you might say, excuse yourself and get off the train. Like, okay, I got the suffering thing. That makes sense. The plagues, you know, I can kind of understand that. The Red Sea was stretching it, but there was wind. So, you know, that could have parted it. But bread from heaven, that's, that's a little far out, right? That's, that's too much. They're out in the middle of the wilderness and God's going to send bread from heaven. Couldn't he teach them to make bread? Wouldn't that be a little bit more along the lines of reason? No, God says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. So God's about to provide, but not necessarily the way that they want him to provide or the way they expect or ask for. He's providing, and God gives us a a glimpse into why he's going to provide the way he provides. And that's verse 4. So the Lord said to Moses, "After I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God knew, he told Moses that they're not grumbling against you, Moses. They're grumbling against me. They got issues with me, Moses. And I'm going to provide for them. And the reason I'm going to provide for them is so that I test them. I want to test them. I'm going to provide for their stomachs, but I want to, they have a heart problem right now. I got to go after their heart. I can't just send bread, Moses, because they're grumbling against me. So he says, I'm going to test them. And that, I mean, that's, 
how I th- it rolls with me at least, maybe you, but we know things aren't right and we complain, but we don't even complain to the person that could make it better. We just find somebody to throw up on. It's just, I just got to get it off my chest and complain. That, that's, that's, it's just like this background noise in our life, this complaint, this grumbling. It's, it's, it, that's what it communicates to me. It's like, yeah, we, we have this uh, white noise machine for our kids to take naps with so they don't wake up. And when that's running and running, it's like I don't even notice it, but I'm just getting edgy in the house. I'm just like, why do I want to punch something? Like it's just this constant waterfall of, of sound. And then I realize it's the white noise maker and I turn it off and it's like, like heaven opens up. We don't realize how much we complain, guys. We don't realize how much we're grumbling. And I, I'd encourage you today to take notice. Take note of the internal and external complaint that's going on in your life. Where, where and how are you grumbling? Notice it today. Just tune in. Take note of that background noise. They, it could be small things like how the, the toilet paper's folded wrong, you know, or your car's dirty. It could be huge, important things like a, a lack of communication in your marriage or you not connecting here at the church like you had hoped. Maybe you walked in and you couldn't find a seat and nobody moved over and you're grumbling about it. Take note. Take note of it. We're, we're all doing it. But we can't just let it remain background noise that just, just, just lingers with us. I, I became, man, just this week, I'm getting kind of exhausted of this series because every week God insists on bringing something up in my life pertaining to the story. You know, it's like, just let me teach the Bible. I don't want to live it. I mean, come on. Ah. So I'm grumbling, complaining all week long. I probably do it every week, but I just like tuned into it this week. And I'm just like this constant state of things not being right. And I know it's not right, but I don't really want, I don't do anything about it. I just complain about it. Just kick things around the house or go like, I don't know, for a drive or, or, ah, man, grumbling, complaint. It's everywhere. I, on the, we were uh, driving home last night from, our, uh, from my sister-in-law's house. It's about an hour away and it's late and Levi's in the back and he won't stop whining. Like, it's late at night, and I'm trying to read my sermon, you know, my holy sermon that I prepared, <laughs> trying to prepare it, and he's just like, this voice, and dad, I'm hungry, I gotta go to the bathroom, I know I want to go at auntie's, and it's just like, I'm gonna drop you off here in the middle of Riverdale, <laughs> and you're gonna figure this out. I just, and I didn't even know what was going on, I was so ticked, and I was like, oh, oh, okay, got it, grumbling, complaint whining. It's not fun. But this stuff may be subtle, but it is so dangerous, guys. We can't just make friends with it. This, this author that I like, his name's Paul Tripp. He, he says this great quote, grumbling is the background drone of a discontented heart. Grumbling is the background drone of a discontented heart. And discontentment is a dangerous foe. It's not something to make f- friends with. And it's not because it's more noble to be content or that nobody likes a whiner. But in a a foundational way, discontentment is dangerous because it's an accusation against God. Plain and simple, it's an accusation against God. Because every, behind every complaint, big or small, big or small, behind every complaint is a thought, God, you are not enough. Behind every complaint, I guarantee it, God, you are not enough. Remember, So Moses tells the people, you're not complaining against me. You're not just complaining because you're hungry. Your complaint is with the Lord. 
And again, it's a legitimate complaint. They're hungry in the middle of the desert. No food. Can't fault them for that. But you're grumbling against the Lord. Although this seems like you, you get a pass on complaining about not having food in the desert, Moses says you're, grumb, you're grumbling against the Lord. Because behind every complaint, big or small, lies that thought, God, you're not enough. So God's about to meet their needs, but he's going to test their hearts. And not in the sense of like, I'm going to give them a bunch of do's and don'ts to see if they get an A minus or a C plus. Like it's not that kind of test, but in the sense of where you test metal to see what it's really made out of. He's going to prove what is in their hearts. He wants to test it. He wants to know what is there in their hearts. He's going to, he's going to satisfy their hunger, but he's going to do it in a way that tests their hearts. So I just, I got to push pause here real quick because he, he says, I want to see if they're going to walk in my law or not. Did you guys catch that? I want to see if they're going to walk in my law. And I don't understand the law in the Bible. I don't have a fantastic grasp of it. But I do know that as 21st century American Christians, we don't, we don't hear law like the Israelites heard law. We think, um, you know, rules that you shouldn't break. We think Congress. We think traffic tickets. We, we, that's what comes to mind when we think of law. But for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, law was highly personal. Highly personal, because at every turn of the law, at every turn, it shows how God wants to relate with his people, how he wants them to know him and walk with him. The law, we're, see, we're disconnected from the lawmakers. We don't know who makes the laws. And that, that's not the case with God. He wasn't content to just give them rules and then leave. He wanted to know them. He wanted to walk with them. And the manna story shows this so well. He, he provides a miraculous supply of food, but he gives very clear boundaries for how they're going to enjoy this food. He doesn't just drop it out of heaven and say, party on. You know, he doesn't, this one author I read says, you know, God didn't just leave a, a note on the fridge that said, hey kids, there's an endless supply of frozen dinners in the freezer. Enjoy it. I'm out of here. You know, that's, that's not what God's doing with the manna story. He wants to dine with them. He wants to eat with them. He wants them to know and remember who is the one that brought you out of Egypt. Remember that. Yeah, I'm going to give you food, but I want, I want you to be connected to me as you eat it. So the first provision, they can only uh, get enough for one day. And God says, eat as much as you want. He's not saying like you're on a diet. Eat, it, eat as much, but don't keep any for tomorrow. That's, that's provision one. So the second provision is that they won't eat it on the Sabbath day, which is the last day of the week. So on the sixth day, they can gather enough for two days. I know it's a little confusing. You know, it's like, okay, just one for, enough for one day, one day. And then it's like, okay, it's, you know, we got to, it's Sabbath tomorrow. We've got to gather enough for two. Those are the two provisions for how they're going to enjoy the manna. So let's read um, in, in verse 13 then. The, we're going to read about God's provision. Exodus 16, starting in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up, finally some meat, right? And covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So the story goes on. They gather the manna, but some of them inevitably keep some for tomorrow. They keep leftovers. And it rots. Worms start growing in it in a day. And it stinks. It's terrible. And then others go out on the Sabbath to look for it. They're like, hey, remember that frost, that bread that showed up? I'm going to go look for some. You know, they're like really stoked. And then there's nothing. 
But right away, they're breaking the two provisions of this miraculous bread. And Moses is ticked. And, and you might think, like, what's, I mean, what's the big deal? They're being frugal. They're saving some for tomorrow. They're trying to provide for their families. You know, like, he's hardworking. He's out there seven days a week trying to make it. That's, but Moses is so mad because he told them that every day God would provide for them. Every day God would meet their needs. But behind their actions lies that thought, God, you're not enough. You're not enough. You know, if I, if I stood in front of you guys today, I know it was pretty shocking last week hearing about some sin that I had struggled in my life. But if I stood in front of you guys today and said, I am so gripped and struggle with the sin of pride, none of you would gasp and none of you would get up and leave. Because it's just so like, oh, pride. I mean, who doesn't got a little pride in their life? Or if I said, you know, I, guys, I have been sinning all week with unbelief, not believing God. Again, you'd, some of you would be yawning like, okay, tell me something exciting like last week. But at the heart of every sin, every complaint that we make lies those two things, pride and unbelief. Pride and unbelief. I can do it better on my own and you're not really as good as you say you are. Pride and unbelief are no friends of ours. You guys should gasp and get up out of here and leave if I say those sorts of things because it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill me if I continue to walk and live in pride and unbelief. We, we, the Radiant School of Ministry meets on Monday nights and we have uh, intensives every now and then on weekend. We had one this weekend, praying through these issues of pride and unbelief. One after another of us get up there and we confess how we're living in pride and how, how it's grown fruit in our lives that we're not so happy with. It always comes back to pride and unbelief. Pride and unbelief. And this manna story shows that so well, how, how pride and unbelief sits in our hearts. Because right here, when, when Israel goes out and gathers um, food for two days or goes out on the Sabbath, their true selves are coming out. Because they weren't just hungry for food. They didn't just need food. God saw their hearts. He saw that that was just a cover for this, this bottomless desire in them for life on their terms. They wanted things their way. They might have even wanted God's things on their terms. It might have looked even more noble and spiritual, but at the, at the core of it, they had an, just a, a desire for life on their terms. It's lust which is an ugly word that we don't like talking about, that we often associate it with sexual sin, and it is, but lust is, 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 is anything. It's, it's this desire in us that we, that we have to have more. We're never satisfied. I have to have more. It's that gap of more and enough. It never closes, because as soon as you get more, it's not enough. As soon as you get more, it's not enough. It's, they, the, the Israelites were lustful. They weren't just hungry. And God saw that and he wanted to test it and prove it out of them. So this stuff is residing in us. I'm sure of it. And there's three questions that we can ask to kind of, because it's a little daunting to say, okay, where am I wanting life on my terms? Or where am I lusting? Or, you know, it can feel a little bit like, oh, I don't know where to start. But three questions I think can be helpful. When are you angry? When are you anxious? And when do you escape? When are you angry? When are you anxious? When do you escape? 
Because these questions, when we answer them, can really reveal the background noise that's going on in our lives regarding complaint and grumbling. I wouldn't describe myself as an angry person. I'm not prone to outbursts or, you know, throwing chairs at people or um, violence. But, man, I have, I have become so aware of how angry a person I am. And it might not come out in, you know, in these real demonstrative outbursts of anger. It's a very polite anger. But I, I've just realized that this anger is just fueling this grumbling and discontent in my heart. And it, it shows up, and it probably shows up like this for you. It shows up with just irritation, right? This just state of being irritated, impatient, defensive, frustrated, or just all around grumpy. I'm just having a bad day. Just need to be left alone. I'm angry. I'm angry because anger is tied to our entitlements. We think we deserve something. And when we don't get it, we're angry about it. We think we deserve something. And when life, when we assess life to be unfair or unjust, or that person is unfair or unjust, we get angry. And you might not go out, haul out and punch somebody, but you're angry. Take note of it. When are you angry? When are you angry? And don't let yourself off the hook just because it doesn't show up like you think anger shows up. When are you angry? When are you anxious? I, I used to be medicated for anxiety. I, I used to have to take pills to calm my anxiety. And I'm sure, I know that's probably the story for, for many of us. I know how crippling anxiety can be. It's, it's terrible. So that, that could be where you're at today. But even if you're not going to the doctor to get medicine or because you're having panic attacks, take clue in about your, the level of your anxiety. When are you anxious? When are you anxious? You know, it could show up in like just being overly cautious, perfectionistic, just this kind of worrisome thing. Oh, it's just my personality. I just worry. You're anxious. You're anxious. Maybe you check you know, every five minutes to see if somebody new has friended you or to see if somebody commented on the comment that took you 10 minutes to comment on because you didn't want it to be interpreted as stupid. Like, I know this. I know how that goes. It's anxiety. And it's just robbing us of our time and our energy. It's just lingering in there, subtle, just because it doesn't come out like a panic attack or needing medication. Where are you anxious? Because the flip side of anxiety is just a shade of fear. Because you want something and you're afraid you won't get it. So you're anxious. Or you don't want something bad and you're afraid you will get it. So we're anxious, right? It's not just this personality defect of, oh, I just worry a lot. We're anxious, guys. And we're grumbling. Escaping. Again, don't let yourself off the hook when I say, when do you escape? Just because you don't, you know, you're not getting tanked every night like that guy or you're not, you haven't had five boyfriends in two weeks like that girl. I mean, don't, don't, don't blow this up to like, well, I don't escape. You know, I'm here. I'm in reality. I, I, it, it, it jumps out for me how I escape. You know, it could be just like constantly checking email it can be escaping, Right? Constantly checking Sports Center or Pinterest can be escaping. I come home from looking at my phone all day, and I come and look at my phone all day while I'm at home. 
And it takes like my son like 10 times to get my attention to the point where he's yelling and then I'm irritated at him because he's yelling at me, but it's because I've been escaping. Oh, what happened today in the world? What emails did I get today? Boredom is grumbling, guys. Boredom is grumbling because you are discontent with what is present, so you want to get out of what's present, even if it's just quickly, and you're just, oh, I'm just checking, you know, Instagram or just checking Twitter real quick. We're escaping. We're not content, so we escape. When are you angry? When are you anxious? When do you escape? We got to answer those questions. We can't just accept this background drone of a discontented heart that's going on in us. So, at this point, I'm feeling a little depressed and discouraged because it's like, okay, this isn't just about bread coming from heaven. Like God's getting at something. He's getting at pride and unbelief. And those are big daddy sins that the enemy doesn't want to go away in our lives. But God is getting at something. He's testing us. Not in the sense of like pass, fail, do's, don'ts, but testing to prove for us to see what's in our heart. So we can't just look at this miraculous provision of bread from heaven and say, okay, I get it. Just be more content. (laughs) I'm just going to be happy with what I got. Or you can go the spiritual route. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And it's just, you're still grumbling, complaining because things aren't right. Things aren't right. I'm angry. I'm anxious. I want out. But there's something really cool about what the, the manna what it did for the Israelites. You know, God was, he wasn't just taking them out on a camp out just for f- the fun of it because God was bored for, for, and he did something to do for 40 years. Like he was taking them to redeem them and r- take them to a promised land. And time and time again through this story, he'll talk about the promised land and he describes it. Do you guys know how he describes it? He calls it a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Flowing with milk and honey, which to me sounds a little messy right off the bat. It's like, Really? Milk and honey all over the place. That's, that's where we're headed. But to these uh, former slaves, I mean, just think what it must have sounded like. They're former slaves wandering the middle of nowhere. And God's saying, I'm going to abundantly bless you with the richness and sweetness of life, guys. He's always calling them forward. He's not just testing things in their hearts just to like, ah, look what I can do to them. He's moving them to a promised land. He wants their hearts true. The manna. The manna, if we, if we read on in the story, it talks about what this manna, remember it showed up like dew, right? It looked wet at first, the manna. It's out like dew, like on the grass, you know what dew looks like. And then it says the manna, or the manna was white in color. And you know what it tasted like? It tasted like honey. The very appearance of it, wet and white, tasting like honey is like telling them, guys, there's a promised land. There's a promised land. And that, that manna, that manna was never supposed to satisfy the Israelites forever. It's not like God was giving it to them and saying, this is what you're going to live on forever. No, it was calling them forward, reminding them of the promise that God was bringing them to. White had the appearance of wetness at first, and it tasted like honey. The land flowing with milk and honey. And the, every day they're eating it. Every day they're reminded, God's promised something. God will fulfill it. God is enough. And you know what's really cool? They eat this stuff for like 40 years, which, I mean, it's not, again, this isn't tri-tip and biscuits and really, it's man, it's like, 
They eat it for 40 years. And then as soon as they get into the promised land, it stops just like that. Every day, except for the Sabbath, it shows up. And then they walk into the promised land and no more manna. And they feast on the abundance of the land. They taste the promise. The manna was never supposed to satisfy them. It was meant to sustain them, to move them forward, to test their hearts, but it wasn't supposed to satisfy. So if we step back from the story, if we step back, we want to get a view of what God might be doing today. In, it, through us, in Jesus, I probably should have switched those. Through Jesus, in us. Yeah, we can edit that. Um, So Jesus shows up, and before he goes into ministry, you know what he does? He's baptized. He's baptized, and then as soon as he's baptized, it's it's like the best baptism that's ever happened. Like heaven opens up and God talks. I mean, didn't happen at mine, but that was a pretty good baptism. As soon as he gets out, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, without food, without drink, to be tested. The Spirit takes him to the wilderness, Jesus, for 40 days, 40 nights, Similar to Israel wandering for 40 years in the desert, Jesus wanders 40 days and he's tested with food, he's tested with fame, he's tested with power and the whole time he clings to God without grumbling. Jesus clings to God without grumbling and then he leaves the desert, goes into his public ministry and one of his most famous uh, miracles that he does is he feeds 5,000 people with two loaves, sorry, five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish. He feeds them miraculously, like 5,000 people. It's incredible. And a lot of people start following. Like, hey, this guy's good to follow. He, f- he feeds good. So his, the crowds are growing. And the Israelites knew about this manna story. They knew about how God had provided miraculously for their forefathers in the desert. They knew about it. And so they start bringing it up. They, they mention the manna story. And I love how brilliant Jesus is here because he hears them say manna and he takes the opportunity to connect the dots for them. He connects the dots. These, these Jewish people that know the story, they say manna and he's like, oh, let me tell you about manna. Let me tell you about manna. He says, like we read in John 6, he says, truly, truly I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread in the wilderness. It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, sir, give us this bread always. This sounds like awesome bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life who come, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying like, guys, it's right in front of you. The manna was never supposed to satisfy you. I'm right in front of you. I'm the bread of life. Jesus satisfies us, guys. Jesus satisfies us. If we could be satisfied in something other than Jesus, then God wouldn't be God. If all we needed was that promotion or a wife or a husband or $500 more a month, God would not be God. If those things could satisfy us, he wouldn't be who he says he is. Jesus is telling them, I'm it, guys. I'm it. I'm standing right in front of you. I'm the bread of life and you'll never hunger again. And then he goes even further because he's got this massive crowd and he starts saying crazy things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like, what? I was here for lunch and now 
they talking about eating flesh? And they leave. So many of them walk away at that point because they can't handle it. They don't, they want God, but they, do, they want God on their terms. They want God on their terms. They want God's will, but not God's way. And isn't that so true for us? So many of us get tripped up at this point because we want God. We know that Jesus satisfies. Maybe we've, you've tasted him and you know that he's good. But there's still this grumble in you that wants life on your terms. And you're angry and you're anxious and you want out because of it. But you know what Jesus is talking about there when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about when his flesh will be ripped apart and his blood will be poured out. Those are God's terms. Those, the cross is God's terms for redemption. And if it was up to me, I wouldn't choose to be redeemed like that. I would have picked something a little more neat and tidy and less messy. But Jesus is telling them, I am the bread of life and here are the terms. So what do we do then? We get it. We're grumbling. We're discontent. We want life on our terms and God doesn't show up the way we want him to, so we're mad about it. You know what I love about God? Jesus isn't, we can't see him or touch him today. We have yet to taste the fulfillment of his promise, right? We're not yet home. And he's calling us forward. He's calling us toward that promise every day, providing for you. Not just to provide for you, but because he wants you to know who's providing. He wants to dine with us. And Jesus left us, but he didn't leave us as orphans. He didn't just leave us and say, I'll be back. It'll be a while. Hang in there. He's given us his Holy Spirit. It says those, Ephesians says that those who have believed in him have been sealed with the promise. Sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's a deposit, a guarantee. Guaranteeing what's to come. Until that day that we fully obtain it, fully grasp it. He's given us his Holy Spirit. We need his Holy Spirit. It's not just the weird part of the Trinity that we don't want to think about. We need the Holy Spirit. It's life it sustains us. The Holy Spirit can sustain us until that day that our, the promise is fulfilled. So I just want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. I pray that you'd be here in our midst. We need you, Lord. We're grumbling. You know, could we just stand? As we, I just feel like we should stand as we're praying this. I just want to declare, God, that you haven't left us as orphans. You're not just playing tricks with us, Lord. You're providing for us, but you're providing because you love us. You're with us, Lord. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. You left us the Holy Spirit. And I'm sorry, God, for trying to make it on my own, for wanting life on my terms and not your own. God, lead us to the cross freshly today. Holy Spirit, fill us anew today, God. Sustain us. Let's just wait on him. Aware of all our grumbling, all our complaint, all our anger. Let's just wait on him. He's the one. We don't just need to tell ourselves, be more content. Just get over it. 
We need him. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. I